1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Laura Dean, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Millikan University and Director of the Human Trafficking Research Lab, uh, about her 2020 monograph, Diffusing Human Trafficking Policy in Eurasia. Dr. Dean, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining me today.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm coming to you from Riga, Latvia.
1: <laughs> Great. Um, so, and you are doing your field research there, right?
2: Yes, I'm working on a second book project, which I think will be your last question. So,
1: uh, yes, yes. So, <laughs> we will loop back to that at the end. Um, so, to get us started, could you talk a bit about your research background and how this particular project originated?
2: Sure. So um, so um I'm a political scientist by training, um, but I also have a master's in Russia, East European and Eurasian studies. Um, so I have an area studies background as well as my political science background. And so I kind of came to this project, you know, with my knowledge of political science, but then also a deep knowledge of the language and culture um, of the region. I've studied Russian, Latvian um, and Ukrainian, and I've lived in all three countries and did field work in all three countries. Um, so I kind of, you know, but that was my starting off point for being able to do the research. I knew I needed, you know, the language and cultural knowledge to be able to go into the field and do an immersive study. Um, and so I kind of gained those skills during my Ph.D. and master's degree. Um, and then I went into the field for my dissertation research. Um, and so before I started my Ph.D., I actually worked for a year at a human trafficking shelter in Latvia. Um, and so there I witnessed firsthand kind of the, you know, human trafficking policy failures, the hoops that many victims had to jump through to get to the services that they needed. And so that was kind of back in the back of my mind when I started my PhD. And I kind of always knew that I would want to write my dissertation on some aspect of human trafficking policy. Um, so so yeah, so that's why I came to the topic. Um, Russia's The most widely studied country in Eurasia and pretty much almost every facet of our region. Um, So I decided to focus my study initially on Ukraine um, because they were the first country in the region to criminalize human trafficking and adopt, um, they adopted landmark human trafficking legislation in 2011. And so I was sitting there in 2011, 2012, thinking I could go to Russia. Russia's, you know, been covered before, so I'll go to Ukraine instead. Um, And thankfully, I was able to get funding from the Rotary Foundation. And so I went to Ukraine for a year and then I supplemented that trip with uh, trips to Latvia and Russia um, because I realized that, you know, Ukraine had great policy on it. But I also wanted kind of this comparative study to look at countries that didn't have great policy and then countries that were kind of middle of the road. So I began my study trying to compare Latvia and Ukraine. And then I ended up expanding to Russia because Um, Russia has a very limited human trafficking policy and so it makes it kind of like I have a really a country with a really great human trafficking policy Ukraine one that's middle of the road which is Latvia and then one with the worst policy in the region um, which is Russia so so that's how I came to my study and kind of framed the cases that I chose Um, a lot of it was based on language and a lot of it is also based on funding so where I could get funding to do the research that I needed to do
1: Uh, And what was your research process like?
2: Um, So I did research on the ground. So I did interviews with anti-trafficking stakeholders. Um, So I interviewed people who work at NGOs. I interviewed members of parliament. I interviewed people in the different ministries that actually um, advocate for and implement human trafficking policy. Um, I also did participant observation. I went to lots of trainings around um, all three countries, actually, kind of looking at how they're training and how they're implementing. Uh, Different aspects of the human trafficking legislation. And then I did archival research um, at different government archives and NGOs. So I kind of did a lot um, in the 15 months that I was in the field. Um, And yeah, so I mean, uh, so that's kind of the research process. And I did a most similar small end case study, which is basically looking at Ukraine, Latvia, and Russia and comparing um, the similarities in those countries to try to find out why. Um, certain countries had, you know, better human trafficking policies than others.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, now, for our listeners, um, let's define some of these terms. Um, starting with human trafficking, how do we define that?
2: Sure. So, so human trafficking is a form of gender-based violence um, in which a commercial sex act, organ removal, or labor bondage is induced by force, fraud, and coercion. And those aspects of force, fraud, and coercion are really important because that's where we differentiate human trafficking um, from, you know, issues of prostitution, issues of migration. It's that force, fraud, and coercion. And so we see a lot of people really conflating human trafficking with prostitution or really conflating migration with human trafficking as well. But human trafficking Mm -hmm. has to have that aspect of force, fraud, and coercion. Um, so in every country of Eurasia, all 15 countries, it's defined differently, but they all kind of build off the UN protocol to prevent, suppress, and punish trafficking in persons. It's, it, the name of it is UN protocol to prevent, suppress, and punish trafficking in persons, especially women and children. Um, it was adopted in 2000 in the city of Palermo, Italy. So we call it, uh, instead of naming that entire very long United Nations name, uh, we call it the Palermo <laughs> protocol kind of shorthand. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so that was adopted in 2000. And that really kind of sets the tone. So there's a really, really long definition that goes along with a really long title of the law. Um, But basically, it comes down to the fact that it's um, sex trafficking, organ trafficking, labor trafficking, that's induced by force, fraud or coercion.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, human trafficking is a pretty misunderstood term, right? Um, As you mentioned, and Eurasia is another one, right? So how do we define Eurasia? So it's interesting because the,
2: so my book title, you know, is uh, Diffusing Human Trafficking Policy in Eurasia. Um, And it's interesting because when I was posting on social media about it, um, I initially named it as Diffusing Human Trafficking in the Post Soviet Region. And I got a Mm -hmm. lot of pushback from other scholars in the region. Um, about, you know, kind of perpetuating this issue of colonization and that I shouldn't be referring to many of these countries as post-Soviet anymore. You know, it's been a pretty long time, uh, you know, since they you know, many of them, are, you know, all of them are their own countries now. And so a lot of people are saying, when, when should we stop using this term? And so I ended up switching it to Eurasia. And basically, Eurasia includes these 15 post-Soviet countries that are the successor states to the Soviet Union. In Eastern Europe, the Caucasus and Central Asia. So I don't include the satellite states. So it's really the Baltics and then Ukraine, you know, Belarus, Moldova. Um, so those are kind of the countries in Eastern Europe. And then all of the Caucasus, Central Asia, and of course Russia. So so yeah so I didn't want to perpetuate this um idea of colonization and so that's why I decided to use uh that term and I'm assuming on this podcast everyone knows the 15 countries of Eurasia normally I name them all but I'm assuming people listeners uh, are acclimated with the fact that it's Armenia Azerbaijan Belarus Estonia Georgia Kazakhstan Kyrgyzstan Latvia Lithuania Moldova Russia Tajikistan Turkmenistan Ukraine and Uzbekistan
1: Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of listeners will know, but it's, it's helpful to just reiterate for those who might not. Um, and that that's a really interesting question, actually. When do we stop saying post-Soviet and kind of move on to a different term? <laughs> yeah, and it was
2: most controversial for scholars in the Baltic states. So when I actually mm-hmm. when I talk to people in the Baltic states, like I just gave a talk um, in um, March in Lithuania, and they were saying, well, we don't, you know, we don't look East, we only look West. And so it's interesting how this terminology in our region is important, but it's also very controversial. So people in the Baltics are asking me, why did you include Eurasia? Um, I also get Mm -hmm. lots of questions in the Baltics about why did you put a Matryoshka on the front of your book? If your book includes, you know, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, that's not a symbol that we associate here. Um, So it's kind of interesting how, you know, a term, something that, you know, many people would think is very basic is actually something that's like (laughs) very controversial in our region.
1: So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Um, And we we will come back to this a little bit more later. Um, The last term that I wanted to make sure we defined was policy diffusion.
2: Yeah, so the crux of the book is looking at how policies diffuse. So it's a diffusion framework um, that's been used to describe different processes. So it's been used to describe different norms transfers across countries, so how norms transfer from one country to another. Um, Sometimes this is related to different aspects of war and conflict. Uh, Policy diffusion has been used to look at the spread of democracy around the world. Um, So it looks at how democracy has diffused um, from one country to the other. Um, But it's also used in public policy to describe why and how states adopt new policies. And so that's what I really focused on um, in my study. I wanted to look at why countries adopted, why we see some countries adopting really great human trafficking policy and others adopting, you know, not very encompassing human trafficking policy. So I'm looking at specifically why and how human trafficking policies have transferred or diffused from the international to the national level? And if um, they are diffused, then can we actually see them transfer to the local level and be effectively implemented and have effective policy mechanisms to actually work? Because it's one thing to adopt a policy, but it's by far another to actually implement it and have that policy be effective.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, now, you touched on this a little bit before, but I just wanted to talk about it in a bit more detail some of the misconceptions that Uh, people might have about human trafficking and what it is and how it functions?
2: Yeah, so there are a lot of misconceptions. So especially with our region, um, and I think the biggest one with human trafficking is that it only includes sex trafficking. Um, Eastern Europe um, is really synonymous for this issue of sexual exploitation. So our region even has a stereotype of human trafficking victims. So they've been dubbed Natasha's. Um, And they're seemingly similar-looking women who are female victims of uh, sex trafficking. Um, Mm -hmm. Sorry
1: about
2: that. Hold on. Um, So, yeah, so they're seemingly similar uh, victims of sex trafficking, and they have these Slavic-looking features. So it's interesting, um, and they are very prevalent in... The um in prostitution in Western Europe, specifically Germany and the Netherlands. And so we have this kind of ideal type of trafficking victim that everyone thinks comes from Eurasia. They have these Slavic-looking features, but in fact, that's not actually the case. Um, so we see women and girls account for about 72% of global human trafficking victims identified, but 50% of those identified in Central Asia were men and boys. And so we see kind of this changing dynamic um, in the region and we need governments to really kind of acknowledge that. So a lot of um, governments really acknowledge And focus on sex trafficking. Um, and they aren't kind of moving beyond that because that's a very like, you know, late nineties, early 2000s type of, uh, stereotype of trafficking victims. That's not actually prevalent. it, It, you know, it is, it does happen in our region, but we're seeing by far more male victims of labor trafficking come forward, um, currently than we, you know, ever have before. And that's because traffickers change their dynamics. So they know now, you know, people are educated about not to answer ads in the newspaper, looking for models and things like that. And so traffickers have really had to kind of change the dynamic, and exploit a different population of people to be able to, you know, make the money and um, have it be a lucrative profession for them.
1: Um, now, in terms of sort of what the human trafficking, I guess, world looks like today. Uh, where are most most of the victims coming from? Where are the perpetrators coming from? What kinds of work are they doing?
2: So, I mean, so human, you know, human trafficking victims can look like anyone. That's also a big stereotype. Everyone thinks they're young women. I mean, so in shelters that I've worked in and worked with, you know, I, we've had people who are 65, 70 years old, uh, you know, being exploited. And so there isn't just one type of victim. It's something that could happen to anyone. Um, And so so assessments of the scope of human trafficking in Eurasia vary. So um, the Migration Research Center estimates that um, about 1 million people are trafficked within Russia every single year. But then the Global Slavery Index estimates that 1.6 million people are currently enslaved in Eurasia. And so estimates, because this is a crime that's really underneath the surface and very difficult um, to locate, very difficult to find victims, these estimates, you know, are just estimates. We might never be able to know the true magnitude of the crime. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the regional estimates. And then um, when we're looking at different aspects of trafficking, so we see sex trafficking, labor trafficking, organ trafficking, all in our region. Um, there's child sex tourism, which is a problem for boys and girls in Moldova. Um, we see state-run orphanages and foster homes being implicated throughout the region. Um, there's lots of forced begging. So I think almost anyone who's lived in the region has seen children at train stations begging for food. Um, some of those are actually trafficking rings where the um, kids are forced. Many times they're drugged um, to, you know, beg uh, for money, beg for food and things like that. And that money goes to a pimp type of person. Um So so, yeah, so that's actually that is a very regional type of trafficking from our region. Um, So we see that happening in Moldova, Azerbaijan, Ukraine. Um, Then there's labor trafficking, which I would argue is more prevalent than sex trafficking. Um, But again, because these estimates and because it's very difficult to locate victims, um, yeah, we don't actually know. So when I give these kind of, you know, descriptions of trafficking uh, that's happening in our region, these are all just estimates. And this is based on the victims that we locate, too, right? So we would estimate that maybe we locate 5 to 10% of the actual victims. And so it's really based on who comes forward. And so so labor trafficking is much more prevalent. About 2008 in Ukraine, they kind of saw a change from sex trafficking cases to labor trafficking cases. Um, And so we're seeing lots of forced labor cases in factories, in construction. Um, I had an interview subject in Moscow that told me that the city of Moscow was built on the backs of slaves because everywhere you go in Moscow, you know, things are being built, things are under construction, and they are arguing that a vast majority of labor cases are from the construction industry. Um, so yeah, construction. So the winter Olympics um, we saw a lot of um, there's a lot of news stories about that. The world cup is, was also a huge issue um, when it was in Russia. So we, there were reports of North Koreans being forced to work in the logging industry um, also, the internally displaced people and the displaced people as a result of the conflicts, most notably the conflict in eastern Ukraine, um, kind of those protracted conflicts also produce victims. So we have like a lot of things going on in our region, a lot of political dynamics that really make it uh, a ripe region for human, for lack of a better word, um, mm-hmm. a ripe region really for human trafficking. And so those are kind of, you know, the overarching things. Estimates are difficult to come by. Um, I focus less on the perpetrators. But what is interesting to me is that many of the perpetrators, I call them like mom and pop small businesses. So it's not like we definitely do see rings of trafficking. We see, you know, intercountry. you know, there was a there was a big ring from Ukraine to Lithuania to the UK. Um, so we definitely see organized crime and issues of corruption. But there's a lot of mom and pop um businesses where people, you know, pose as legitimate businesses and they exploit people in farming industries and things like that. So um, just like there is no specific type of trafficking victim, there's also no specific type of trafficker. I mean, you would be very surprised to see some of these people that are tried for trafficking. And then you would be surprised to see that some of the people that are trafficking people that are never actually tried. Um, so because this is a crime you know, that really lots of people can operate on it without impunity. Uh, The police are reticent to go after people, especially for labor trafficking. So sex trafficking, if you can't get someone, if you can't charge someone with sex trafficking, you can usually charge them with pimping, um, which is illegal in, I'm pretty sure, almost every country. And so um, if so, but labor trafficking doesn't have that type of sub statute. And so it's very difficult to, um, to bring perpetrators to justice in our region, you know, in the United States, basically every country in the world is not great at bringing these perpetrators to justice. So like we assume that, you know, we see five to maybe 10% of the victims, um, we would estimate that it's maybe 1% of the traffickers that are actually just charged even. And many of the people that are charged are never actually brought to trial.
1: Mm -hmm. So that makes your, your job quite difficult, I would think, because it's so hard to quantify how, where it's going on, how much is happening, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's what I got to my final chapter in writing this book. And I was like, you know, basically a book looking at how policies are adopted on trafficking, how they actually work. And then I was sitting there thinking, like, what makes an effective human trafficking policy? That's actually very difficult to discuss because almost all of the policy options that we've had so far don't actually work. So, um, so yeah, so we're still looking for it, but yeah, I mean, that's why it's very difficult to, you know, research on, you know, crimes that are underneath the surface that people don't want to talk about. Um, and it's even more difficult when you have governments that are really reticent to do anything about it. And many of them just ignore that it's a problem.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, and you mentioned, um, some of the kind of gender dynamics at play here, for example, people assuming that Human trafficking equals uh, sex trafficking, but how do gender inequalities um, in these Eurasian societies impact policy around human trafficking and attitudes around it?
2: Yeah, so the patriarchal norms and you know the, in the Eurasian region make women much more vulnerable to trafficking. Um, gender-based violence is a huge issue in this region, um, and so and it contributes to victims' vulnerability. Um, About 75% of trafficking victims in Moldova were also victims of abuse or domestic violence. And so we see overlapping, um, you know, uh, uh, um, techniques, overlapping kind of statistics on this. So if someone's a victim of domestic violence, that makes them more likely to become a human trafficking victim because they're wanting to get out of the situation that they're in. Um, And so we kind of see a perpetuation of gender-based violence in this region. Um, gender inequality is also one of the huge impetuses and push factors for human trafficking. So we see gender inequality, you know, labor migration, corruption, inefficient law enforcement, um, all of those things, the stigmatization of victims. So many people, I can't tell you how many people I talked to, um, in my interviews that told me, well, these women are victims. They're just prostitutes. Um, so there's a huge stigma of victims. People do not want to come forward. Um, people, there's a victim's, uh, assistance that you can get. Many people are reticent to do that because then the government knows that they're a victim. Um, and so these gender inequalities are, I think, play a large part in uh, human trafficking issues in Eurasia. Um, they also, so Buckley argues that human trafficking is more prolific in countries where the demand for prostitutes is high and where Slavic women are prized as exotic and beautiful. And so we kind of see an othering of women from this region um, with issues of sex trafficking. Um, so yeah, so gender inequalities and this idea of othering victims and really kind of, you know, seeing women from this region as being exotic and interesting is one of the those are some of the huge drivers um, you know, pushing people to, you know, uh to into trafficking situations. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what is the body of scholarship on human trafficking in Eurasia look like? Where does where is your study situated?
2: So there's a lot of research. I mean, there's many wonderful organizations that do amazing work on this. So the International Organization for Migration is one of them. They're one of the leaders in the world um, for human trafficking research. Um, the OSCE, so the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, also has does human trafficking work international labor organization um, also the united nations um, office for drugs and crime so many of them have conducted like amazing studies on human trafficking Um, but they're really limited in that they only analyze kind of the impact of the problem they really sometimes only describe the laws um, so they don't really offer and evaluate and see if these laws are effective um, and then many of the studies that we see are not cross national so there's great research on Russia Russia is the most researched country in our region on human trafficking there's wonderful research on Russia um, there's great research on Moldova as well but a lot of those are really limited in their case studies and so my study you know looks at the region as a whole i do you know three different cases look you know looking more in depthly at three different cases but then i also do quantitative Um, analysis on all 15 countries in the region. So, um, so yeah, so my, I hope my book is kind of building on the amazing research that has been done by many scholars, both, you know, in North America and the UK and both in our region, um, on this issue. And then I'm hoping to kind of expand that, you know, to looking at the region as a whole and kind of the different dynamics that Um, that are at play when countries decide they want to adopt human trafficking policy and also things that are at play when they want to decide that they actually want to implement it.
1: Um, What are some of the kinds of work that the United Nations does um, in addition to the studies that you mentioned uh, to fight human trafficking?
2: Um, So, yeah, so the United Nations was really at the forefront. So um the Palermo protocol that I talked about kind of set the stage for um, human trafficking policy around the world. And a lot of people attribute that as the impetus for human trafficking policy. So once, you know, basically they, the United Nations adopted that policy, people signed on to it, and then they had to ratify it. Um, and a lot of the mechanisms talk about how uh, the countries must criminalize human trafficking. They must work on initiatives to rehabilitate victims. They have to do awareness campaigns and things like that. And so it really kind of laid the international groundwork for it. Um, but again, countries can sign on to it. They can ratify it. And then they can choose to do nothing else. And so I think it takes a bit more than just the United Nations protocol on this issue to actually get countries um, to adopt it. Because if it was just the United Nations making countries adopt this then we would see uniform policy throughout the world we would see you know a kind of a better baseline for trafficking policy around the world and that's not what we see in Eurasia we see huge variation um, between the countries uh, and so so yeah so the United Nations kind of started the process but then to actually get policies adopted in, uh, in in you know on the national level in those countries we actually need people on the ground in those countries pushing, and working to try to get the policies adopted and implemented.
1: Uh, now, in addition to um, some of the quantifying uh, problems, figuring out uh, who is being trafficked um, and where it's happening, what are some of the other factors that make it so difficult in these countries to craft effective anti-trafficking policy?
2: Um, I think the biggest thing is to get governments to realize that it's an issue. Um, many times they think other policy areas cover it. They think um, When I was in Russia, a lot of people told me, you know, the government has bigger things to worry about than human trafficking. They have to worry about issues of terrorism. They have to worry about drug trafficking and things like that. And so getting attention actually on this uh, topic is rather difficult. Also, when you have, you know, different societies that are very prone to victim blaming. And I want to say in America, we do this, too um but when people are blaming the victim and saying it's their fault that makes people less likely to want to adopt effective policies because if you're saying well it's their fault then the government doesn't have anything to do with it because it's the person's personal choice um, and so i would say you know first getting it on the attention of the government and then actually having effective rule of law so having having the policies is the first step but actually implementing them um is the second step and so um, Having effective rule of law and adopting policies that actually are going to be implemented and that actually work and that actually go after traffickers um instead of charging them with issues of, you know, pimping and things like that makes it, um, that's what makes it difficult. And I should say, you know, as an American, the U.S. government also does not do a great job. So I'm not just here shaming Eurasia. It's pretty much the entire world that does not do a great job. At um, catching traffickers, most countries in the world charge for a lower statute than human trafficking because human trafficking is so difficult to prove. Which again is a problem, right? So if we have if countries around the world have great laws on human trafficking, but no one is ever charged because it's so difficult to prove that force, fraud, and coercion, that means that we need to adopt better policies that can actually be used and policies that actually match the crime. We shouldn't be we shouldn't hear of traffickers going to jail for a year or two or not even going to jail, um, which actually happens a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. And to what extent is this politicized in Eurasia? And how does that impact, uh, these, uh, difficulties in implementing policy? So,
2: I mean, so the, so the United States government, this is a issue that the United States government has kind of taken on themselves, um, the, in, uh, when the Palermo Protocol was adopted, uh, the United States adopted their own policy on human trafficking that basically said that they were going to start on issue a trafficking in persons report. And so it's a report where the U.S. government grades countries around the world um, on human trafficking policy. And so if you can imagine as a professor how controversial grades are in our in academia, um, <laughs> if one country is grading every single other country in the world, um, and then, of course, you know, in the U.S., we grade countries we like better than countries we don't like. Um, that can be, very, I'm sure professors don't do that, but um, I, that can be something that's very politicized. Right. And so the United States has kind of used this shaming technique within the trafficking in persons report to downgrade countries. And that in turn has resulted in a lot of pushback. So. Um, I would say in Ukraine and Latvia, the you know, influence of the U.S. government has been relatively positive, um, but in Russia, it's the exact opposite. Uh, human trafficking is so politicized in that country because of the emphasis that the U.S. government puts on it and because the U.S. basically gave Russia a failing grade, um, which in turn then Russia refuses. So you have to report your statistics on it to the, to the U.S. embassy um, in your country as well. Until so Russia basically stopped, uh, stopped giving their statistics to the U.S. government because they realized that they were only going to get bad grades on it. Um, so they kind of shut everything down. And then they passed the law on foreign agents. Um, mm-hmm. And that has led to, you know, significant. So a lot since the U.S. emphasis is on human trafficking They funded a lot of initiatives in Russia um, and Eurasia on this issue. And so with the law and foreign agents, as most of your listeners probably know, you can't get more than 50 percent of your funding from outside agencies. And so we've seen a lot of organizations that worked with trafficking victims have to close because trafficking is so politicized that actually focusing on domestic violence and sexual assault is seen as less controversial than human trafficking is so and i know you know Russia. yeah and russia has been in the news recently for the you know decriminalization aspects of um domestic violence policy but human trafficking is much more controversial and it's because of the u.s basically shaming russia um and again like the u.s the u.s started this report and it took them almost a decade to evaluate themselves on it Um, so while it's an interesting report and it's really the only report um, around the world that does, that does evaluate it, it's very politicized and we give countries that we like better grades than other countries. And so, so yeah, so this politicization really comes from the U.S. I think if the U.S. wouldn't have gotten involved in it, we might see more effective um, policies. We might see less pushback from other countries. But the U.S., you know, again, this trafficking in persons report is like a plethora of data and information about human trafficking around the world. Um, And so it's definitely useful. um, But yeah, the grades, uh, the grading and shaming of countries around the world make it much more politicized.
1: Yeah, that that unfortunately sounds par for the course in terms of the Russian, uh, the way that Russia has reacted to American uh, sort of criticism of its political system, (laughs) particularly in the Putin era. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, um, in this book, you focus specifically on the period uh, from 1998 to 2015. So what is significant about this period? What are some of the key sociopolitical events in the region um, that have had an influence on the human trafficking issue?
2: So I focused starting in 1999 because that's actually when, or 1998, sorry, Um that's actually when the first policy in the region was adopted. Um Ukraine was the first country um, in Eurasia to adopt human trafficking policy. And so that's why I started with that year. And what's interesting too is when people talk about the influence of the Palermo Protocol, um, and, you know, the United Nations Declaration on Human Trafficking, that actually wasn't adopted until 2000. So Ukraine was actually ahead of the game in adopting policy before any UN regulations on it. Um, so yeah, so that's why I start with that date. Um, and then I went until 2015 because that's basically when I stopped gathering data, um, to, uh, conduct the study. So I, I'm sure I could go back and conduct even more data, but eventually you just have to publish the data you have. So, um, but yeah, but I think that those dates also are important too, because, you know, in those in that time period, we kind of see the rise of Vladimir Putin. Um, we see increasing, you know, author- encroachment of authoritarianism in the region. Um, we see the start of Maidan, which, um, you know, it has been significant in the fact that there are large internally displaced people um, and there are, you know, people who went uh, on the other side to Russia and are now refugees in Russia too. So we see a lot of, you know, conflicts in the region, um, kind of, you know, aspects of authoritarianism that makes it so countries don't care as much about issues of human trafficking, because they have other issues. And that I would also say this issue of terrorism, too. So kind of the rise of terrorism, is kind of, you know, the thing that everyone has been worried about until the until COVID-19. Now people are definitely worried, more worried about that. Um, But yeah, but I would definitely say that, you know, of authoritarianism um, we've seen countries. So Belarus actually has really great human trafficking policy. And um, what they do with that is they use it to control their citizens. So you can't leave Belarus without, you know, registering with um, offices there. They really try to control people that are leaving and going in and out. So when you look at face value, you see Belarus has great policies on human trafficking and so it's kind of this like uneasy conversation where actually some authoritarian regimes have really great <laughs> and successful human trafficking policy because they use it to control their citizens which you know is kind of a problematic thing um it's just a different element of control versus you know a pimp or someone controlling you and so so yeah so those are kind of some of the socio-political events that have really governed this and so with the rise of Vladimir Putin right so he with and the politicization of trafficking um they kind of You know, Russia adopted a human trafficking policy, and then they basically haven't done anything since then and haven't expanded upon that, where we see other countries like Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Georgia, Moldova, um, really kind of adopting encompassing policy throughout the region. So where Russia kind of stopped and doesn't really go forward, the rest of the countries have continued to increase the scope of their policy and be more inclusive to other types of victims.
1: Um, You you've already covered um, a little bit of the sort of commonalities in human traffic policy um, across Eurasia. Sort of what are some of the biggest commonalities and what are some of the major divergences in the ways
0: that the countries uh, implement these policies? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com system
2: so all of them have um so i i kind of created a typology i looked at the different types of policies and i created a typology and so all of them do criminalize human trafficking which is great um, so that means that it is criminalized if you traffic someone um, and they also include forced labor. They include um, issues of child trafficking, uh, organ trafficking and things like that. So they definitely all have a criminalization approach to this. Um, but the interesting thing about trafficking policy is criminalizing it is the cheapest. Right. Because basically when you criminalize a policy, um, you know, you give it to the police and say, now you can we'll train you on how to identify trafficking. Um, situations, and then you have to charge these people with the criminal statutes. Um, but when you move past that criminalization, that's where it actually gets more expensive. So usually you have the police force in place to be able to, um, you know, investigate, uh, these issues. But when you try to get into victim services, that's when it gets more expensive. When you get into issues of raising awareness to things, different aspects of research on this, that's where it gets much more expensive. So, Some of the commonalities are that we definitely see it criminalized across the region, Um, and we see different countries, you know, approaching criminalization in different ways, Um, but that's kind of where many of the commonalities stop because, again, you know, they're all their own separate country, and so they have different approaches um, and different dynamic human trafficking dynamics within them, Um, and then, again, we see some countries, you know, moving on and adopting more encompassing policies than others.
1: Um, What are some of the anti-trafficking institutions uh, that have emerged in Eurasia and how do they work together?
2: Yeah, so this was something that I didn't. So when I went into the field, I didn't realize that I would see these commonalities because I was thinking like, okay, I'm looking at a democracy. I'm looking at a semi-authoritarian regime and then an authoritarian regime in Russia. Um, So I was thinking like there's no way they're going to have the same institutions that will combat human trafficking. So anti-trafficking institutions are basically government agencies and institutions that are set up to combat trafficking. Um, And so, yeah, so I was kind of surprised to see similar commonalities um, across my three case studies. And so the first one is a national coordinator or rapporteur. Um, So basically, Russia has one, it doesn't really work that effectively, but basically, it's kind of a point person in the country for human trafficking. So it's someone that you know can facilitate better policy adoption it's someone that can facilitate better policy implementation but it's basically kind of a point person for the international community and for people within the country to locate and say that's the person that's in charge of it um what's interesting is that um in ukraine the national coordinator is in the ministry of social policy but in latvia it's in the ministry of interior and then we would argue in Russia, it's in the Ministry of Interior as well. And so, um, are they, yeah, anyway, they have a different name for it in Russia, but it's fine. Um, so anyway, so it's interesting how some countries promote this policing aspect, and then other countries promote this kind of social service aspect. Um, so national coordinator is the first one. So then other uh, tra- anti-trafficking institutions are working groups or task forces. Um, so those are, you know, organizations of people throughout government and NGOs and non-governmental organizations that include and work to combat trafficking collaboratively. So really the first step is getting that national coordinator and then usually working groups you know, are working with the, you know, Ministry of Interior, they're working with the Ministry of Social Policy, they're working with the Welfare Ministry and different types of agencies to be able to coordinate a concerted trafficking response. Um, the next are police units. Again, all of them have police units, um, whether they're effective or not is another story. Um Human trafficking shelters. So that's actually something I was thinking that most countries would have trafficking shelters, but I was actually surprised to learn that some of them did not. Um, so these are shelters for victims of trafficking that they can go to. Um, and then there's also a victim of trafficking certification process. And so um, at least Ukraine and Latvia in my case studies both had certification processes for victims so they can get um, assistance from the government. And it has been controversial in the Latvian and Ukrainian case, because sometimes the committee that certifies doesn't identify the person as a trafficking victim. And so they can't get assistance, but the NGOs do. And so. Um, so, yeah, so many of these institutions are kind of controversial um, and some of them are more effective than others. Like the police units were definitely the most effective institutions across the board, but even their effectiveness is still problematic.
1: Um, Now, in this book, you introduce um, the Human Trafficking Policy Index, which is a new innovative way to measure the scope of human trafficking policy. Um, Can you talk about its development and implementation and what sorts of insights you've gained from it?
2: Sure. So, I mean, I'm hoping, you know, that this index kind of, it basically attempts to rank the scope of trafficking policy in Eurasia. And so I looked at all of the policies that were adopted in Eurasia, all 135 of them. Um, from 1998 to 2015. And so I wanted to kind of show this variation because I knew that countries, especially the case studies, had different approaches to trafficking. And so I wanted to actually quantify and show people the difference because that's the thing. You can go to Ukraine and you can tell people like, yeah, you have a great trafficking policy compared to you know, Russia. And they'll be like, oh, how do you know? And so I wanted to create kind of this policy index to really show um, quantitatively the differences. And so what I did is I actually started out, there are a few human trafficking policy indexes um, in America. And so I kind of looked at how they evaluated human trafficking policy in the U.S. states. Um, And so then I expanded that and adapted that to the international level. Um, So yeah, so my, my first point is like a definition. So I made sure that they included sex trafficking, labor trafficking, organ trafficking, and child trafficking. And that's not really something that a lot of the U.S. states cover. And so the international kind of expansion of it is important. Um, safe return is also something that, you know, it's very prevalent. So safe return a safe return policy is when a trafficking victim from your country is trafficked to another country. So let's say from Russia, they're trafficked to Germany. Um, a safe return policy would ensure that you had mechanisms to return that person to Russia if they wanted to return um and so that's something again that the US states don't really have to deal with cuz the US is much more of a destination country and so that's very prevalent in the international sphere with trafficking this issue of safe return um temporary residence permits was also another point that was super important because um if that person who was trafficked to Germany wanted to stay in Germany we needed to show that they actually could remain in Germany um and then vacating convictions is another was another important aspect so when someone is a trafficking victim, sometimes they are forced to commit crimes during their trafficking situation. And so um, vacating convictions means that if a victim is charged with a crime like prostitution or something like that, that those convictions can be vacated and cleared from their criminal record. Because that's the thing about trafficking situations, right? So they, if people are have a huge record of prostitution um, violations, it's going to be very difficult for that person to get a job. In the future, because people aren't going to want to hire someone with a criminal record. And so, um, and then we'll just see a perpetuation of the trafficking process. And so that's why it's important to kind of look at what the variables are for the most encompassing policy. And so basically when I came up with this index, I wanted to determine what constituted an encompassing human trafficking policy. And so that's where all 15 points come from. And it kind of builds off this, um, what the United States has done and really kind of adapts it to an international um, level so and then I rank all the countries and I do it every single year um, which is interesting and I would love to see this index um, be able to be adapted and evaluated in every single country of the world that would be great I would love to also expand it to see if we can because that's the thing just having a hotline in policy doesn't necessarily mean that you have a human trafficking hotline in reality, and so I would love to see if I can take the index and actually measure implementation with it as well um, someday in the future.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's. I mean, it's a really incredible tool, and it looks like it hopefully um, has the potential to do a lot of good in that region. Um, now, you mentioned uh, some of the positive and negative impacts of the United States, right, with uh, uh, influencing uh, human trafficking policy. What about Western Europe?
2: Um, so, I mean, Western Europe. So the Council of Europe has been really great, I think, um, in kind of, you know, pushing countries to uh, adopt human trafficking policy. Um, they have something uh, called like it's a the Greta. It's a group of. I'm trying to think what it's actually, group of researchers. Um, I'm not actually, I'm, I, I can't remember the actual um, <laughs> acronym. Um, but it's basically, so within the Council of Europe, oh, so a group of experts on action against trafficking in human beings. I don't know why I couldn't remember that. <laughs> um, anyway, so the Council of Europe has um, different protocols um, on human trafficking. And so they do a lot of great work in this um area and they also are a big impetus in the region for compelling countries to adopt trafficking policies um, but unfortunately um like Russia and some other countries are not party to these agreements and so um so we see countries in Western Europe and really kind of the Council of Europe limiting uh you know their scope and their influence on this region um, with human trafficking policy. Also, one thing that they do, and they do this a lot in Ukraine, is they really try to put up like barriers. And so they don't want people trafficked to the EU. And so they'll give money to Ukraine and Moldova, right, to be able to stop human trafficking in that region, which is great. But then, you know, sometimes that money is, you know, really aimed at stopping people from migrating and not really aimed at helping trafficking victims. And so instead of actually trying to help trafficking victims, it just ends up, you know, exploiting more people and making it much more difficult for people to migrate. And so they kind of become like barrier and border states where people are just, you know, sitting in uh, basically, you know, detention centers waiting for um, different hearings and things like that. And it's because the EU wants to limit external migration to it. Um, and so, so yeah, so I mean, The Western Europe does great things, but when they're only really paying and, you know, giving assistance to stop migration, um, it kind of, you know, offsets all their other good deeds on, you know, issues of human trafficking and things like that. Because when they're really just trying to stop migration and don't really care that much about human trafficking, it it can be kind of problematic. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, No. What are some of the challenges you've encountered as a researcher doing this work? I mean, you mentioned some of the, again, the quantifying um, where and when and how the the trafficking is happening, but what are some of the other challenges?
2: So, I mean, so I'm clearly American. um, So actually, like going to do the research um, in Russia, it was much more difficult than I anticipated. Um, Being an outsider, right, you know, definitely comes with its privileges, but then it also comes and makes it much more difficult. So, um, so when I was in Ukraine, I had lots of people because the US government is paid, you know, and has a lot of funding to Ukraine. Um, I would go to places and people would show me these different programs. I went to one shelter, and the woman made me take a photo next to the plaque that says this shelter was paid for by US government funds. <laughs> right. So I think, yeah, which is funny. Um, so there's definitely like, there were privileges being an American doing research in this country because of the U.S. emphasis on this. I think that many people only met with me because they felt like, because I was American and they felt that because they'd received money from the U.S. government, that they should meet with this random researcher who was traveling around different areas of Ukraine. Um, so that was kind of challenging because, you know, you have to balance the privilege that you have with the researcher. And then you're going like I traveled to 11 of the 22 oblasts in Ukraine, um, you know, looking at the different how the policy was implemented. And so, you know, being able and having the privilege to do that um, and kind of, you know, kind of solicit um, interviews and things like that. Um, it can be problematic and you have to kind of recognize the privilege that you have. Um, one thing I ran into, so I chose to, um, go to Kharkiv instead of Kyiv, um, because they had a great human trafficking shelter and they have a wonderful gender studies center at, um, Kharazin National University. It's the Kharkiv National University. Um, and so I went there and I was going to do work in, um, and volunteer in the trafficking shelter. But then when I got there, um, it actually didn't work out. You know, the person was a little skeptical about having a foreigner come. Um, And so I ended up having to kind of adapt my research and travel around Ukraine. And so um, that's one thing that I think, you know, most people in our region know and most people who have gone to the field know you kind of have to be adaptive to your research. So the research that I went in and thought I was going to be doing ended up being, you know, completely different. Um, another big challenge was Russia. So, I mean, Russia, government ministers didn't want to talk to me um, in Ukraine. It was easier, like. I, there's an MP that I, our member of parliament that I interviewed and it took about 50 phone calls to get him to finally <laughs> give up and know that I would not leave him alone until he, until I interviewed him. Um, but that's the thing in Russia that just was sometimes impossible i would sit in the lobby of the ministries because you know in russia they won't let you in the government ministry so i would just sit there um, waiting for this specific person um i got to be good friends with many of the security guards (laughs) um asking them like (laughs) when is this person going to come so um so yeah so russia is a challenge to do research in. also one thing about russia is since there's so much research being done on it right you have you're competing with other researchers. So I was in Russia at the same time as researchers from Harvard were. And a lot of people were like, oh, well, we already met with the, these people from Harvard, so we don't have to meet with you. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely kind of like a hierarchy, whereas in Ukraine, um, it was a lot easier because I think especially this was pre-Maidan, um, you know, people were excited and interested to talk to a foreigner. And then in Latvia, because I worked at a trafficking shelter in Latvia, most people here knew me. And also I speak Latvian, which is pretty rare. Um, and so that my Latvian language gets me in the door many places. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's what I would say. Like some of the biggest challenges were, you know, actually getting interviews because interviewing government officials and regimes that don't actually want to, you know, talk to foreigners that are often shamed in their human trafficking approaches. Um, from my own government makes it kind of problematic, but then sometimes that actually helps me. And so, um, so yeah, so I mean, and also human trafficking, right? So it's a controversial topic. Many people conflate it with migration, prostitution, and things like that. And so that makes people much more reticent to talk to foreigners about it. So sometimes I wondered if I was a local, if things would have been easier, but a lot of the locals, often told me that they didn't think it would be easier because people just ignored them as well. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, so those are definitely some of the challenges, but yeah, you always have to be adaptive in your research. Like when I went, I didn't think I would include Russia. And then um, when I did my human trafficking policy index measurements and I realized that Russia had the worst policy in the region, I wanted to go and find out why, so. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so be adaptive to research. And the challenges, sometimes they present as challenges, and then sometimes it end, actually ends up working out for, the you know, a better. Like in Ukraine, it was really challenging when the organization that I had contacted and really wanted to work with wouldn't return my phone calls and things like that. And so I had to end up going around the country. But I got to see a lot of, you know, Ukraine, which was amazing. And I got to talk to lots of different people and kind of see on the ground how policy was implemented. I went to, uh, I went to a school in Poltava and like we did a training with a bunch of junior high kids. And that's one of my fondest memories because these kids were like, why is this lady here? Because <laughs> Poltava is not a big <laughs> city in Ukraine. Um, anyway, so they were like thought it was amazing that some foreign woman was there at their school. And like it was pretty interesting because in Ukraine they have. Um, they do education, you know, with kids in schools on human trafficking. And so it was really cool to, you know, I knew that in the policy that they had that, but it was cool to see how it was actually implemented by, you know, a wonderful NGO on the ground and actually see it being implemented in the schools and see the kids learning um, and doing like fun exercises where they got around and like, they did like a human trafficking trial and everything. So it was very like innovative and like the kids were up and walking around and talking and everything. It wasn't, it wasn't what I have experienced myself as a student here where I just get talked to. It was much more like innovative and exciting. And the kids, yeah, I think enjoyed learning about issues of human trafficking.
1: So that's definitely cause for hope, right? Yeah. Um, so what, I mean, I know there's probably many, but what are some of the key takeaways from your research that you would like to see influence anti-trafficking policy in the future?
2: Um, yeah, so I think there, I mean, there are definitely a bunch of things, but I would say the most important is to make sure that, uh, they have encompassing policies. So I was very surprised that even the Palermo protocol, um, was geared towards women and children, which I think is problematic, especially because human trafficking policy, Um, evolves. It's evolved, you know, since I started studying it in the mid 2000s, I've seen it evolve from sex trafficking to labor trafficking in our region. And so, um, so yeah, so I would say making policies that are more encompassing and open to all sorts of victims is the most important part because if you have policy that is only geared at a certain kind of victim, you're only going to be able to identify that certain kind of victim. And then you're losing all of these other people that could deserve and need rehabilitation services, Right, that putting them at risk for um, a trafficking situation in the future. So I think um, people who construct public policy on human trafficking need to take a holistic approach to combating trafficking and also with offering rehabilitation. In our region, still, there are many countries that do not have trafficking shelters for male victims, which I think is really heartbreaking, especially since we're seeing, you know, an increase. Um, The vast majority of victims in our region are now male victims of labor trafficking. And and their needs are very, very different than um, female victims of sex trafficking, but there's nowhere for them to go. And so, again, that puts them at risk to another trafficking situation and to be re-trafficked in the future. Um, another thing I would say is they, uh, the policies need to go beyond criminalization statutes. So every single country criminalized human trafficking, but many of them stopped there. Um, we need national programs or national laws to be able to um, have, you know, awareness campaigns to be able to do research. Um, and on different aspects of human trafficking. And so we shouldn't just focus on this policing aspect of trafficking. We need, again, like a holistic pro- approach, not just criminalizing trafficking, but also helping victims um, and providing victim services, because many countries do not offer services, rehabilitation services for victims. Um, so let's see what else. So I would say um, human trafficking institutions, again, I talked about this focus on police um, and a little bit of social services. So I think police and social services both need to be trained um, to identify different trafficking victims. There are some shelters that only work with female victims. And so, um, so yeah, So and they're only trained to identify female victims. And so what happens if a male victim of forced labor or a male victim of sex trafficking um, comes, you know, comes back home or, uh, comes to their shelter and actually needs help. So, um, so yeah, so providing kind of nuanced, um, and more inclusive services for not only men, but also children too. I was actually surprised that very few had shelters and places where children can go. Many times they put them in orphanages. So if you can imagine being a child that is trafficked and then you're, you know, finally freed from your exploitation, exploitative situation and then they put you in an orphanage. Like that just doesn't sound like the most, re, you know, the best environment for rehabilitation services, especially because we see people trafficking, you know, individuals from orphanages. So again, putting them at risk for trafficking. So we really need to kind of stop this cycle of trafficking and it's, you know, issues of poverty, issues of abuse that really lead um people, you know, to an exploitative situation. And so if we're able to stop and get a handle on those, um, which again, like asking governments to solve, pol- you know, the issue of poverty is very complex um when they feel that they have more important issues to worry about. Um, let's see. Yeah. So then again, like I would also say this like gender order in Eurasia, it produces a gender division of labor where governments prioritize this criminalization over a victim-centered approach, um, and that's a disparity that should be remedied. So the inequalities that I found are not just in policy implementation and adoption, but also in different institutions that they have and networks, and they're all designed to implement these policies, and they often perpetuate gender disparities um, on human trafficking and don't, you know help all victims and focus on criminalizing and putting traffickers, you know, charging them with crimes, hopefully putting them in jail, things like that. But then your many countries still leave the victim um, and a victim-centered approach behind.
1: Uh, Now, to wrap up, uh, could you share what you're currently working on? Um, You mentioned at the beginning that you're in Latvia now working on a different project.
2: Yeah, so I'm in Latvia. Um, I didn't, you know, I came here before the virus uh, started. And so um, I and I decided to stay. So I was here on a Fulbright grant um, to research uh, gender issues in the Latvian parliament. Um, and then Fulbright actually ended when the epidemic started, basically, um, and they told us to leave. And I said, well, I think I'm going to stay because I think the situation in Latvia is going to be better than in America, keeping in mind that, like, I would go into parliament. So parliament meets every single Thursday here in Latvia. Um, and I, met, I was in parliament every single Thursday so I could see the government working on these issues. Um, and so kind of with that knowledge, I decided to stay here in Latvia. And um, I'm glad that I've been vindicated. And uh, I think I made the right choice. Um we have very, we have a little over a thousand cases and 25 deaths, um, which is still tragic in a country of two million people. Um, but I think the government here has done an amazing job, um, with the issue. So, um, so yeah, so I'm here doing research, um, on gender dynamics in parliament. So I'm interviewing female members of parliament to learn kind of if having more women in parliament makes a difference for gender policymaking. Um, so in 2018, Latvia almost doubled its, its representation of women in parliament, um, to 30%. And so they're the fourth, um, they're ranked fourth in the region behind North Macedonia, Kosovo, and Belarus. Um, but they're actually the highest country in the region without gender quotas. So the Latvian population, had, you know, decided to vote in 30% women all on their own. Um, which is pretty amazing. So I'm kind of looking at and analyzing different issues with that. I'm looking at violence against women in politics um, and doing, you know, interviews with MPs to talk to them about different types of issues with gender policymaking.
1: So, oh yeah. Thank you very much. Um, So today I have been speaking with Dr. Uh, Laura Dean of Milliken University about her 2020 monograph, Diffusing Human Trafficking Policy in Eurasia. And that is now available from Bristol University Press. Thank you for listening. And Dr. Dean, thank you again for joining me. Thanks for having me.